Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for July 22nd, 2015. I'm Stuart Wills, and today the topic is scientific workflow. It's a term that publishers and others concerned with scholarly communication throw around a lot these days as they seek ways to understand and serve the needs of their target audience. But it's a moving target. What does workflow really mean in an era in which scholars are continually adopting new digital tools to solve some aspect of getting the job done? Fortunately, we have two people on the line today who've thought a lot about that very question. Jeroen Bosman is the geoscience librarian at Utrecht University Library, and Bianca Kramer is the life science and medicine librarian at the same institution. Among other things, they've started a project called 101 Innovations that's seeking to amass data and insight on how digital tools are reshaping how scientists and other scholars do their work. Jeroen, Bianca, thanks very much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Yes, thanks very much for inviting us. Well, first, a bit of background. Uh, what is the 101 Innovations Project, and, and how did you come to get this started? Bianca, could you start us off about that? Sure. It's a project basically uh, aimed at driving changes in scholarly communication landscape and doing that by looking at the tools people are using and the changes in the tools that they're using. And we started this about one and a half years ago, partly out of our own curiosity, and also uh, based on the idea that we want to broaden our services to researchers beyond us uh, just supporting discovery and publication, but also reaching out into other areas of uh, research support. So why uh, 101 innovations? Well, let, let me take that question. First of all, the, uh, just the, this title catches the attention, and also it makes clear that uh, 101 is a lot, but it's not exactly 100. It can, can be any number, and actually it is by now a, a lot more. We have uh, charted some 500 of, of these tools. Hmm. Um, what we also like about, about this name, it, it, it's a sort of reference to, uh, to all the names that people give to their introductory courses. So it's also <laughs> a kind of introduction into uh, thinking about tools and especially thinking about uh, uh, creation of new tools. And, and finally, uh, this is also a tactical choice, of course, but because any, any title beginning with a number always sorts nicely, comes up on top of all, all kinds of lists. <laughs> so, so that's tactical as well. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about some of the details here, um, starting with, I suppose, what scientific workflow actually means. Uh, as, as I alluded, it's kind of a, kind of a slippery term. You, you, you have identified, I think, six phases of scientific workflow. Can you really just quickly take us through those phases? Yeah, uh, sure. First of all, uh, like you say, it, it's a slippery phase, and we made a very simple model, but like all models, reality is more complex, and we're now seeing, rather than a really cyclic model, like we described, it's becoming uh, multi-cyclic, and it's also becoming multi-ordered. It's not these activities that we describe are not subsequently gone through subsequently, hmm. as you see many interfaces now. But the phases we distinguished were discovery, so looking for information, looking what's known about the subject that you're researching, uh, analysis, gathering data, analyzing data, then writing, writing up for publication, sharing your findings with others, doing outreach, um, making your findings known to other scientists and also to the general public, and finally assessment, so assessing your own impact and the impact of others. And you might say that there's even a seventh phase or maybe a first phase, and that's preparation, grant application, um, 
getting ideas, finding collaborations, and so on. Well, I'm curious because you know you you, you mentioned this notion that uh, it's not necessarily cyclic but multi-cyclic. I, I do remember that you had you had diagrammed this as a as a kind of a circle where. Uh, where the workflow kind of kept feeding, phases of the workflow kind of kept feeding into the next iteration. What do you mean by, by multi-cyclic? That uh, within each of these phases, people also cycle within these phases. Like when you do writing, you don't write in one go. You do a draft, then you get mm. comments on the draft, you rewrite it, and the same for publication. You might submit, go to peer review, you might have to resubmit, uh, revise, or submit to another journal. Those kind of internal cycles within each of the phases. I see. And it's interesting because that, that suggests that each of those phases kind of has a different set of drivers for, you know, what the researcher is looking to do and for a sort of user behavior. What what are the kinds of things that, in, in dealing with these various phases, that, that you think drive researchers uh, in the tool sets they, that they choose to kind of master those things? Well, I think there are indeed many different considerations there. For instance, it, it might be what people were brought up with, not not in their early youth, but but as a as an uh, early uh, sage scholar, or what they get uh, kind of advice from from colleagues or from their PIs. Uh, also, just plainly what 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 is, is available if there is a, is, a, is a cost attached. But of course, in in the end, it comes to the functionality that the tool offers and its it, it friendliness. But then there is this problem that people have also invested in tools. And the more they have invested, the more there will be a, a kind of burden uh, for them to, uh, to, to switch tools because they have to, to learn new tools and uh, the things they have invested might be uh, thrown away, sort of. And also, of course, this varies over, over academic fields and, and researcher roles and even perhaps between characters. Some people just don't, don't like switching. They mm-hmm. like to stick what they know. To, to really get a grip on this, what, what we did is uh, we introduced um, a, a very simple model. We termed that the GEO model, so that's G-E-O. Um, and that looks at whether tools contribute to making science either more efficient, so that's the E, more open, that's the O, of course, or more reproducible, and that's the G. We, we call it good, efficient, open. Mm-hmm. But good, you, you, might, you might interpret that as being more reproducible or fair. So, for instance, the, the DOI, is, 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 you could call that a tool that, that is just for efficiency, to make uh, scholarly communication more efficient. But a thing like, uh, like archive, uh, much used in, uh, in physics and astronomy and, and, and maths, is a tool that makes, of course, uh, a lot of research more open. Whereas a, a very recent tool like uh, Publons, I don't know if the listeners uh, know that tool, where uh, people can claim their peer reviews, might be called a tool that makes uh, science more reproducible by uh, getting more attention to doing your peer review and getting the credits for that. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that there's a certain sort of activation energy in getting people to switch tools. Uh, One aspect I found particularly interesting is that you have identified uh, in, in some of your work for, for each of the workflow phases that you, uh, that you talk about, uh, one development that on the horizon or ongoing that's potentially most significant and one that's potentially most disruptive. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, just give, give some examples of, of, those, uh, of those observations. Yeah, sure. 
These took an enormous amount of discussion among us to, to get to these points, and uh, they mainly aimed at uh, triggering discussion and framing developments and getting people to talk about these kind of developments. Based on our own experience, our own ideas, also some literature and looking at all the different tools that we saw in doing our inventorization, inventory. And some examples, when you look at, uh, at publishing, one thing that will be interesting is to look at the effect of uh, journal and publisher status, whether that will remain the driving force in uh, how people decide where to publish, or whether that will diminish and uh, other publishing models will gain some traction or have the opportunity to gain traction, like PeerJ or Science Open or the Winnower. Mm -hmm. So that's one issue for publication. And when you look at assessments, interesting thing, thing there is to see whether we'll keep the focus on the really uh, quantitative measures like citation and impact factor, all these internal uh, quantitative measures, or whether it will become more important how, um, how scientists can explain to the public the importance of their research, valorization, uh, prove their contribution to society, whether that will become a more important factor in assessing impact. So you you know as you, as you mentioned a lot of this was kind of based on discussion and and on uh, in, in essence kind of uh, your modeling of the of the process but as as you know earlier this year you start actually started up a survey to try to get a handle on on the tools that that people are actually using maybe you could talk a little bit about that survey how it's set up and what sort of audience it's it's trying to tap. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm glad to do that. This survey was intended, still is intended to be uh, just a very broad assessment of what people are really using. And that information was not widely available. It's not still available yet. We, we do have, for instance, the uh, three yearly faculty surveys by, uh, by Ithaca, which are very nice, but they focus more on general academic behavior and not on the tools and sites themselves. And what we do with this survey is... Uh, really dive into the uh, usage of those tools. And we do that with a web-based survey, and, and that uh, has all the pros and cons associated with that, of course. It, it, it's very broad, but uh, it's a largely unknown sample, of course, that you get with all kinds of biases uh, in there that we will have to uh, to remove afterwards, try to remove. It will be a, a quite long-running uh, uh, survey. We'll keep it open until February 10 next year. So that people from all kinds of countries and, and all areas will have a lot of time to, to really uh, respond to our survey. And also for us, that we have time to distribute it widely. In the survey, we ask for a tool usage in 17 activities over those six um, research phases. And what we also do, of course, we have some, some basic demogra uh, demographics of all uh, uh, respondents. So that their fields, the country that they are in, their position in uh, in academia, their career length, we measure that by the the first peer-reviewed journal article that they published, in which year was that. Um, so we have those demographics, so we can break down afterwards over those four uh, four categories. And what we also purposely on purpose did is try to make it very user-friendly. So it's short, it's graphical. People really tell us that it's, it's easy to do, fun to do, and even uh, that people learn a lot from it. They they get into contact with uh, with all kinds of new tools that they uh, try afterwards. Okay, so you you as you as you point out, it's still uh, it's still an ongoing survey. It's going to be up through February. But you did recently release some. Uh, very preliminary results uh, based on, I think, the first thousand responses to the survey. What, 
can you can you say anything about what those early results are telling you and whether there are some you know some of these many available tools that are that are either starting to gain scale or that are fine that you know are are as you suggested you know maybe old tools that are that that people are still really stubbornly sticking to well i don't want to to disappoint you there but uh, actually, it, it's really too too early to to tell with any confidence. Although we did publish that, but more as a kind of teaser to to let people know what can come out of this if they if they participate and really if a lot of people start participating. So really, the the, the sample size and the bias in the in that in the, in those first 1,000 is is just. Uh, the sample size is too small and the bias is too strong. For instance, we we started distributing it in our own uh, in our own circle. So that's mainly librarians. So we have a lot of librarians ah, there right now. That that's diminishing, and we get a lot of lot more researchers, and we see people from other countries coming in. So and it's uh, it's it's difficult to tell. And also what we what we didn't analyze yet in those preliminary results is all those tools that people mentioned. That we didn't pre-select for them. So, for, for each uh, for each activity, they can select one of seven tools that we pre-selected that we find important or or uh, stimulating. But of course, they, if they use different tools, they can add, add them themselves, and mm. they massively did. Mm. So, right now, with with uh, these 1,000 first results, we already had some 1,800 tools that we didn't list before. That people mentioned, so we have to analyze them and have to see what 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 is all that they are using, and um, so so, so, it's really... so it created a lot of new work for you. It yeah, like... they did. <laughs> oh, but 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 we like it. So <laughs> it, it, it's very interesting to see what comes out of that. Well, there, notwithstanding the fact that uh, <laughs> that it's too early to tell, as you say, there were a couple of things that really jumped out at me, at least. Um, you looked at authoring tools, for example, uh, which are which I think a lot. A lot of uh, organizations are looking at as a potential growth area, but it really looks, from the early survey at least, like a lot of people are still using Word. Yeah, definitely. And we can, of course, hypothesize a bit about why that is. Uh, I think especially in the, in the area of writing and authoring tools, developments are very slow because these are tools that people use every day. And that might explain why they're slower to, uh, to change why they're not so easy to give up on. Mm -hmm. For these new generation authoring tools, the benefit for switching may lie in either the ease of collaboration or the integration of different activities like reference management, uh, even journal submission. If these tools make it that easier to do it in the right format. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that a couple of years ago, uh, Peter Craker did also a kind of survey. And at that time, he found that researchers do use Google Drive, for instance, for informal collaboration but not for more formal writing. And the reason for that was especially the, the lacking of the more sophisticated aspects like reference management and th those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So maybe these new kind of tools will gain traction, but it will probably be slow and we'll have to see. So, so, what about, so what about the way that researchers are archiving and sharing information, you know, where they go to set up research profiles and the like? Any preliminary thoughts about what you're seeing there? Yeah, well, that, that, that's an interesting set of tools. Um, what we see there is, is actually uh, there's quite fierce competition. And, and what's, what's interesting is that the, many of these tools uh, have the potential to be used for various activities in various phases. They can be used as reference manager. They, they can be used for sharing publications, uploading your own publications, writing to your profile. Of course, also uh, getting out with your with your profile, with all the things you are doing, not only your publications, but also your presentations, etc. 
and, and uh, having contact with, with uh, about all, all the things that you're doing, about the projects that you're doing with your peers worldwide. And what you see is that, that many uh, publishers also invest, in, and I, I think strategically, into these, uh, these kind of tools. For instance, a tool like Mendeley, but also uh, for Elsevier, and also uh, papers for, uh, for Springer. They can be used in a lot of these phases, and I, and I think they are probably the, the tools to, to, to watch out for. What will users really start using them for more than just... Mm. Uh, storing your 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 papers. So almost almost um, kind of like one stop shopping. Yeah, perhaps. But also on the other end, this this is also the area where there is really a lot of new new contenders, very broad things like or technical things like Orchid, but also think of Loop or Incent, which is a a, a Dutch initiative, or ScholarBridge or Research Connection, or or also Google Scholar Citations, mm -hmm. which is a kind of passive. Uh, a profile right now that a lot of people have, mm -hmm. but but Google could build on that quite drastically and really perhaps even blow away all the others. Well, I, I guess what you're saying kind of leads into another thought that uh, that I had looking at uh, the work that you've done and the initial results of the survey. It occurred to me that we're really talking about here potentially thousands of different <laughs> you know workflow chains, maybe maybe even tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. Because we have all of these different tools kind of chained together in different ways, you know, as you as you are looking at at pulling these results together and trying to interpret them, uh, you know, over the over the rest of the year and early 2016, do you have any thoughts about how you can roll up what you find into kind of a general, a larger set of conclusions? Uh, how are you going to how are you going to manage that? Yes, you're definitely right. There's going to be a lot of number crunching. We're dealing with a lot of results. And like Jeroen already said, we need to correct for bias uh, in various ways. But it's important to realize that simply using a different tool doesn't mean that you're having a different kind of workflow. It doesn't necessarily change the character of your workflow. And we really want to use uh, look at the, the bigger picture and identify some dominant workflows that are uh, emerging and looking at the ty different types of tools that people are using together. And also, for instance, looking whether people um, are going to use sets of tools that are supplied by one provider. We see publishers strategically buying buying tools to to provide this this, this one-stop shop, maybe this one this ecosystem in which the whole research workflow can be done within their ecosystem. Mm -hmm. It will be very interesting to see if people are actually going to work that way. So these are some of the bigger patterns that we hope to uh, to identify. So beyond uh, completing the survey, what, what do you view as the next steps for uh, 101 Innovations? Well, actually, we are right now mid in the midst of this survey, and we want to get it out to more people. We want to cooperate with people uh, distributing the survey. So uh, uh, quite, quite a lot of uh, institutions already are, are doing that and work also towards more, more global response by having the survey translated in, in Chinese, in Russian, but also in, in Spanish and French. Um, looking out for, for partners in those language areas to, mm -hmm. to work with. But really after the survey and, and after we have done the analysis of the, uh, of the results, we have another quite nice option, which is a follow-up with the selection of people that have, have indicated that we can contact them to, uh, to ask additional questions. So that offers us the, the opportunity to look into the, the why and the how. Why do you use, pe use people, uh, these tools, in some combinations, but not in, not in others? And how do they, these tools work together? 
um, why do people switch from one tool to another? Is, it, is that out of frustration or because their colleague uh, says that, that it's a nice option to use or whatever? So really right now we, we are trying to collect the basic numbers and data and afterwards we do more qualitative uh, follow-up uh, into the how and the why. So where can our uh, where can our listeners go on the web to uh, to learn more about the project, keep track of it, and uh, and take the survey? Uh, we've got a WordPress site. It's called 101innovations.wordpress.com, and that has all the information about uh, the survey, also about the, the options for institutions and societies to get a custom URL so they can spread it among their members and get the data for their own people, and the preliminary results are there, and also some information about the other, our other activities around this, uh, this project. So it's 101innovations.wordpress.com. Well, Bianca Kramer, Jeroen Bosman, thanks very much for being with us. Well, thank, thank you very much. much. It was my pleasure. And thank you for dropping in to the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for July 22, 2015. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day the kitchen's team of pundit chefs serves up a fresh helping of what's hot and cooking in the scholarly publishing world. You can also comment on this podcast episode on its blog page, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from the Optical Society. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs of the Scholarly Kitchen, bon appétit.